0: Hello and welcome to the Anima Café podcast, a
1: chance to hear the recording of our latest café, sharpening your skills around justice, equity, diversity, and inclusion.
0: Enjoy. Hi, everybody. Um, My name is Emma Lind, and I am a diversity and inclusion facilitator, with animal leadership. It's wonderful to see you all. I'm really excited about um, this program. So um, Shaquille is going to be sharing with us some of his most recent thinking as we prepare to uh, re-engage with the Deep Diversity book and curriculum as the new edition is about to be launched this fall. Shaquille? Okay. so. Uh, The focus of today is going to be teaching racial justice without shame and blame and we're arriving at this context in in the midst of a, a revolution in racial justice, which is also very emotionally charged for us all for a variety of reasons. So today is going to be part one of three sessions. The next two Anima Cafes are going to round out this content. So parts two and three, beginning to develop racial pattern recognition and um, building the transformative model for JEDI leadership, justice, equity, diversity and inclusion. And we are so excited this September the latest edition of Shaquille's book, Deep Diversity, A Compassionate Scientific Approach to Achieving Racial Justice, will be launched. It's available for pre-order now on amazon.com. And we're really looking forward to getting our hands on all those copies. Thanks, Emma.
2: Hi, everybody. My name is Shaquille Chaudhry. My pronouns are he and him. I'm co-founder of Anima Leadership, and I'm also the author of Deep Diversity. And I'm delighted to be here with you today. So uh, I'm going to jump right into the content today. It's going to be a little bit different because uh, we're going to do a little, we're going to, I'm going to do a presentation, which this is a short, brief, you know, sprint. And it's really to get us into this topic. Now, what, what, um, what the call out today was uh, what that brought that brought you here is the following and so we want to ask some questions of you we're going to do a little bit of an experiment we're going to run do a little bit of a poll and um so so today's call out was this um is that are you a racial justice educator or edi trainer who is either frustrated by the resistance and fragility you experience uh, when you're trying to teach this work that you've felt uh, or that you felt traditional anti-racist, anti-oppression approaches off, 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 uh, offer useful strategies, but also can be imbalanced or one-sided or ineffective, uh, or that um, you've experienced or wanted to somehow prevent burnout, because you know that that's also in the field. So any of those things, if that is, um, if that's part of what drew you here. And then the other, other question that's also here in the poll is the second part is, What is your main role? This is part of the conversation today. And, and are you an academic? Are you an advocate? Are you an educator or trainer? Um, or are you in a role that's not listed here? Again, unfortunately you can only pick one, but go for the one that seems most relevant to you. Okay. So it's just an initial sense of like who's in the field and we're going to talk about some of these as we move forward. Okay. Now, um, so this is the role. So I want to make distinctions. An academic is research-oriented. An activist pushes for change. An advocate supports others. And an educator, your job is to help a student learn and grow, student being adults um, learner or a, um, um, a student of a younger age. I say this because this is going to be part of the conversation today, all right? And um, as much as these are all roles under the same umbrella, of racial justice and social justice, but they have nuances, differences, and we're gonna come back to these. So that's where the the question comes from. All right, now I wanna be really clear. There is assumed justice, equity, diversity, um, and inclusion knowledge that's important for this session. Things like systemic, structural, institutional racism, those are ideas you should have some background in. White supremacy, white fragility, intersectionality, interlocking oppressions, all of these are important. All of these are part of the process and microaggressions as well. Okay. So all of these, the domain, I just want to say, these are the assumptions upon which we are building. You cannot teach racial justice without having a solid grasp of these ideas. This is what helps us move things forward. Okay. Now, I I also want to name that the conversation today is coming from a practitioner's lens. I'm not an academic. I've been someone that's been involved in this work for about 25 plus years now, either as a teacher, a student, as an educator, a consultant, a trainer, any number of roles, but this is, so I come from the lens of like using theory and then working it through the system. So this is kind of from a place of like, what works and what doesn't, what's helpful and what's not helpful, okay? So I also wanna, Name that part of my identity is that uh, I immigrated here when I was a young child. My family has a history of being from a context in which they survived not one but two civil wars, uh, one that was that actually forced uh, forced us to leave when I was younger. So that's a context there. I also am heterosexual. I'm able-bodied. I'm cisgendered. Uh, um, and uh, I'm middle-class. So I wanna bring that into the space as well. Now, I wanna just say that it was 20 years ago to this year, uh, 9-11, the anniversary is this upcoming September. That's the time that I left activism. I've been involved for about a half a dozen years and I burnt out. And um, that burnout launched this journey of ongoing healing that continues today. And that's a part of the story. And the 9-11 burnout was also the first moment at which I really, I walked away from activism because I was disillusioned from activism. I was in a room in, in the month following 9-11, watching activists of all different stripes snipe and attack each other because we emotionally didn't know what to do. And, and, and just, it, it was a very demoralizing situation down at Toronto City Hall that was supposed to be organized to help us get organized. And yet, instead of following the directions of a predominantly group of, 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 of female identified leaders, people started turning on each other. And they just it was the emotions were so big that it couldn't be contained. And so it was that point that I started looking at, hmm, you know, our, if we work in racial and social justice, there's a lot of dysfunction. We're not, we're not all that shiny and bright as relationships. We're actually, Just as funky as the mainstream organizations we tend to criticize. We got just as much ego and toxicities as anybody else. So that was part of my departure and, and lots of reflection. Now, part of that healing journey that that I've been part of uh, forced me to start looking at myself, start looking at lots of things I couldn't see before my emotional patterns, uh, things that were going on that I couldn't even name. And it, it got me to start looking at this area of emotional literacy. I started studying group psychology, neuroscience, meditation, and more recently trauma therapy. Like these have all been parts of my learning over the last 20 years. Um, and that is what resulted in summarized in Deep Diversity and the new edition that's coming out with a new, new subtitle of Compassionate Scientific Approach to Achieving Racial Justice. So this is where this is starting from. Now, shame and blame. I want to talk about shame because that's the driving aspect here. So we better understand what shame is. Now, uh, according to doctors Medria Connolly and Brian Nichols, who are clinical psychologists and the authors of the psychological case for reparations to the descendants of American slavery, uh, that Brian and, and Medria, who are also dear friends of mine, they've written a lot about about racial dynamics and what what. Um, And specifically, they target the role of shame. And what they say is, while guilt, defined as feeling bad about what one does or feels, is clearly a powerful emotional impediment, we actually think that shame, defined as feeling bad about what one is, is an even more crippling experience. Since shame feels like an indictment of the soul, the experience is one of helplessness to correct the situation. And they also go on to talk about how shame can also activate rage. So the work around justice activates a sense of shame. And there's not a lot of literacy, emotional literacy in the context of social activism. So generally, I mean, I grew up in in, in, in justice world being taught that you know dominant group members, white people, men just need to sit in their shame. It's like, oh, Hell, that is just not how it works. Because shame is probably the most painful of, of emotions, and we do everything to get around it. So that's what's at play that gets activated consciously and unconsciously when we teach racial justice work. You need to know that's the context. So, so what I want to do is set us up that this is what we're talking about. And, um, and so I want to identify three keys Three key challenges to teaching racial justice. All right. Now, where I want to start is with an exceptionally good book called *How to Be an Anti-Racist* by Ibram Kandy. If you haven't read this book, stop what you're doing after this session and order it because it's excellent. It's really, really good. Okay. And in this book, Dr. Kendi um, says says incredibly smart stuff. Here's one of the things that that's that's just brilliant piece of it. Of it's the core of his argument which is, my research kept pointing me to the same answer. The source of racist ideas was not ignorance and hate, but self-interest. The history of racist ideas is the history of powerful policymakers erecting racist policies out of self-interest, then producing racist ideas to defend and rationalize the inequitable effect of their policies while everyday people consume those racist ideas, which in turn sparks Ignorance. So, the strengths are so many strengths of this book. I mean, like the, the definitions are crisp. It's so clear. It's extremely well written. It's very personal. It brings a story into it. It's rooted in a deep historical analysis. This this man is a historian. He knows his work. Other tomb that he wrote. Uh, Stamp from the beginning. So just so much is going on here. Now, um. And he's also, he does something really unique, which he just laser focuses on policies and self-interest as a driving force behind racism. So to undo racism, you got to focus on policies and policy makers. And um, I think it's a must read, because it helps us understand um, how we got here. Now, there's also weaknesses with the book. And I'm using this to talk about the the broader context of anti-racism, anti-oppression. which is that it's binary in its own orientation. You're either racist or anti-racist. Um, and the book, as I said, prioritizes a historical, socioeconomic and political analysis, which is crucial to help us understand how we got here, but not as useful to understand why humans do what we do. And self-interest and power are not the only factors. So for example, we know that, um, there is racial threat and racial empathy going on from, um, at a, at an unconscious level, our, our neural circuits light up when, uh, when our empathy circuits light up when they're around people that tend to be most like us and less so when they're around people who are different. In fact, threat response, parts of our brain start going up. Fear, vigilance, anxiety starts going up. And this is a, this is a, this is a socialized, but it's also biological response that we are, we come pre-wired for vigilance around those we that get defined as outgroup members. So the pre-wiring is in place for vigilance. The pre-wiring is in place for empathy who gets put into those category is socialized. So that's just one piece of information in this. And what I want to suggest is that, is that, you know, one of the, one of the problems around uh, one of the first, teaching racial justice problems is there's an over-reliance on logic and over-reliance on history. And what I mean by that is that that anti-racism, anti-oppression is almost exclusively read through this analysis. Now, the drawbacks of that are that it leads to an incomplete understanding of the problem. I outlined all the pros, and I'm just using Kendi's book, because it's sort of like most recent edition of the kinds of works that I've been reading over 25 years. And I think that it's brilliant. As I said, it's excellent and it's also got drawbacks because I mean, there's no, there's no, there's no framework we can create that doesn't have drawbacks. I'm gonna talk about the deep diversity framework. It has drawbacks, right? Like it's just, everything has drawbacks so we've got to be able to talk about them. Um, what happens is that this, there's a history is linear, right? We look back as ha- hindsight bias. And it's binary and it can reinforce good and bad, superior and inferior. I mean, like, look no further. I mean, think about, you know, when we look back at history, there's sort of like this hidden or implicit and explicitly stated thing that, you know, when we think back to things like, a tro- like civil rights era, we think, of, you know, Nazis and, you know, uh, Germany and things like that. Pe- people are like, everyone thinks, you know, what side of history they'd be on the truth is we'd all be on the wrong side. There's only a small group of people that are ever on the right side of history, then they drag the rest of us along. And you don't have to look any further than the current context that we're in. I mean, the Trump Trumpian context we've been living through is civil rights era 2.0. This is the divisions that were in every moment in history. Right? So so this is and, and so underneath a lot of the work that I would say that isn't being asked but is kind of being implied is really around racial justice work but the underlying message is like, like, what's wrong with white people? What the hell have you been doing for 500 years? Right? That's basically the question. That was the same question that was being asked post-World War II, which is how could the Germans have permitted and participated in the Holocaust? There has been like 50 plus years, um, 70 plus years of studies that have been influenced by that question because there was a belief that the German people must've been deviant for that to happen. Um, but see, that's an incomplete conclusion. So Kendi's conclusion, I think around self-interest is, is incomplete and power is incomplete because you see, we have a neural architecture that is ready to define who our in-group is and who our out-groups are. We know that from research as young as like babies that are like three, three to nine months old. We're seeing that responsiveness to people who, who share the same in-group status, whether it is uh, babies are responding more quickly, to people who share the same gender as their caregiver, the same race and ethnicity as their caregiver, they're responding more quickly, to people who share the same language and accent group as their caregiver. So that we got the neural architecture that is ready for that. And we're also prepared that threat response means that we're ready to punish our group members. So this is at play, which is why I think it's incomplete to think that it's just about a series of policies. No, we, there's architecture ready, ready for that, okay? And, um, and if we don't understand that, then we miss a lot of information. So research post-World War II, for example, shows the deviant behavior of white German people were result of a number of human tendencies to follow the herd, to do as we're told by leaders, to abuse power and dominate. All factors amplified in a context of devastating economic conditions. The behavior, not the people, were abnormal. Okay, doesn't take away from accountability. Accountability is there. Germany is still paying reparations, but but that's important to do. But, but we need to recognize that that's what's at play. There's nothing deviant on, about the people. Their behavior was deviant. We got to make that distinction. So, um, if we only use a historical analysis, it's easy to, to then conclude as as Malcolm was so, uh, made so famous about white people being white devils, right? Or all men are rapists, right? This becomes sort of the the, the white devil error, is what I call it, is that you go to an extreme because like how could people do that? Well, we recognize that it is about power and this is where the historical analysis comes in. It is about how we're socialized. And it's also about this other wiring that's in place, that's looking for certain things. And we gotta be aware of both dynamics so that we can create solutions that take into account this, take into account the biology, neurology and the sociology, right? We've got to play both. It's not an either or, it's not polarized. It's both. So um, so the solution is really to in- integrate psychological literacy with anti-racism, anti-oppression policies and accountability practices. Um, and so we want to understand Um, our neurology and sociology together. And so psychological literacy I'm defining as an understanding of the brain-mind phenomena, in order to skillfully notice and respond to feelings, thoughts, and behaviors within our individual selves and in relationship to others. And the goal of psychological literacy as I see it is the development of discernment skills to navigate complexity and act with integrity. And this is about the skills we need as part of psychological literacy is compassion, self awareness, self regulation, as well as conflict competence and being informed by trauma informed strategies, and to center relationships and healing as part of our work. Now, um, the problem, too, that I want to identify in teaching racial justice is the protest orientation that we have in our work undermines our learning. So, um, We talked about these four roles. Well, what role are you in? Because if you're in the role of an educator, it's different than each one of those other three roles. Because an educator, you gotta help the student learn and grow. Now, that's super important in this work because you see, um, the educator role is overshadowed by the academic and the activist in racial justice work. And as a result, we kind of take the protest from the streets and combine it with activism. We bring it together. And so we've got this protest orientation. And this protest orientation is fine for many contexts, but it's not so fine for learning. And, um, and often what people talk about is that the work is emotionally volatile, and somehow people's emotions get in the way of the work. What I've learned over time is the emotional volatility is not the impediment to the work. It is the work. It's everything. You gotta be able to hold the space. The concepts are just one part, but can you do it? Can you hold the space? And can you help people learn? Because you see in racial justice work, it's the only field that I am, I'm aware of in which if the teacher fails to impart the learning, the student gets blamed. I wanna say that again. We fail to, to teach and the students get blamed. I remember this is like 20 years ago. We were called in to do a, a a training when the school boards had gotten some human rights thing, and some, you know. And I remember walking into it. There's like must have been 20 of us. There's like 200 principals vice, vice principals, and we're like doing we're we're, we're getting to do the privilege walk across a gym floor, and they're having reactions to it. And then when we get back to our huddles, we're complaining about them. And it's like because we just didn't understand the problem. It's like why are you being so damn resistant? Just learn this work. Why can't you learn the work? And then we come up with our responses, which is it's about privilege, which it is. And, we, and it's about resistance because people don't wanna let go of power, which it can be. It's also about the fact that we're just stirring up all kinds of emotions we don't even know frequently um, are getting stirred up. And then we're reacting to their emotions and then blaming them because we don't know how to manage the emotions because we didn't think about that in our design. So so the solution is to consider, we've got to leverage a compassionate learning development model that centers adult learners and their experiences, okay? We've got to develop a way greater capacity to work with emotions that emerge through learning for learners as well as ourselves, because it's damn hard work, okay? Um, and just gotta be compassionate, relational. That is if you want to be an educator. I mean, if you want to be a researcher is another thing, you're a presenter, polemicist, it's a whole, those are all different roles. They're all needed roles. You want to be really clear. I'm just talking about what it means to be the educator, which is my handle. I'm professionally trained as a teacher. And so a lot of the ways we've done our work, I, I, I'm saying this because I did this for a long time. And, and I, I taught the things the way we were supposed to be taught. I talked about power and privilege. I walked people through stuff. And, and then when, you know, and I outmaneuvered and outtalked people and did all these different things, the way I'd been taught, by my racial justice peers and teacher I did all the stuff I was supposed to do. and But you know, the teacher part of me was always uncomfortable with it. I was like, something, but this isn't sitting right. So it took a long time to figure out, right, this is what's going on. But this isn't often talked about in justice work, and it has to be talked about. Now that systemic discrimination is a mainstream conversation, and it's starting to happen, we got to talk about how to do it well. Okay? So uh, what I want to say is that using the, the deep diversity, the solutions that we're, we're use, developing here. What we're finding is that because of the way we, we set things up is that we're seeing a lot of successes inside organizations and you know, there's status quo responses of how things happen. And then there's anecdotes we, we get afterwards. So we have people who are actually um, uh, you know, challenging each other when there's bias at play. That managers are inviting feedback from their team members. That brave conversations are happening amongst team, amongst executive teams after um, a big incident that hits the media. That um, that if there's a there's um, activist voices being raised, that people are starting to look at some of those things as maybe this is a system problem rather than an individual problem. So we're seeing these kinds of things, and from our from our data, we do pre and post assessments and long term projects. And we've got at least half a dozen data sets. And what we see is increased buy-in, reduced resistance, enhanced ability to talk about identity, improved employee engagement, positivity, increased willingness of organizational leaders to commit resources. So we're seeing change happening through through the results. So I just want to say there is a way. Um, Again, Summer Institute, if you want want to get into this more. Okay, teaching racial justice uh, problem number three is uh, becoming like those we oppose. So I'm gonna draw on the work of Dr. Candy and uh, write his book. I love this about him, so transparent. Asking anti racists to change their perspective on racism can be as destabilizing as asking a racist to change their perspective on racism. Anti-racist can be doctrinaire. I ignored my own hypocrisy. I would lash out at anyone who attacked me with a new idea unless I feared and respected them. So anyone been in this work for a little bit of time, you know what he's talking about. We ourselves become very activated because of any number of things by our our the way we've been trained, the culture that we're around, around how do we do racial justice work, and also our own wounding as part of this. So you know, when we find something that works, we don't want to let go of it. I didn't want to let go of it. very hard to burn out before I started realizing something wasn't working. So um, what we know about this is that is that um, just because you're part of social change doesn't mean everything is all rosy because history shows us what happens on the other arc of social change is that the revolutionaries often become like those that they oppose just different outfits. And so I say that from the context of I come from a cultural context in which um, of India that broke up into Pakistan and India. That's my family heritage. And, um, you know, so really my people know what it's like to kick out the British, kick out the white people. But guess what, 70 years later, and now Hindu, suprem- uh, um, Hindu supremacy is alive and kicking in India. Right next door in Pakistan, Sunni Muslim supremacy is reigning, is reigning champ. Right? And we see this anywhere where minoritized groups have have come into power without like taking away any of the things around independence movements. We got to ask the question really important question is society better for the minorities in those contexts? And we see from the macro to the micro that's not the case most often. So if you take a look at Israel, if you take a look at Quebec, if you take a look at um, I'm seeing reports on gay neighborhoods, and you'll see that the marginalization is by everyone who doesn't identify as white, male, and gay. So we see these dynamics from the macro to the micro. Is that is that you know, without needing to f- feed um, anti-francophone sentiment or um, uh, anti-Semitism, it's just asking the question: Are these environments better for other minoritized groups? Well, generally see the answer is like not really, or Terribly not. Whatever it might be. So this is what we're talking about is that, you know, we got to be really aware of these things. So um, Part of this part of what I also want to put into this part is that Again, from a psychological perspective, we need to recognize that there is a there's a lot of stuff going on in justice movement. And what it has to do is that there's a psychological reflex A psychological reflex is is about reciprocity. So reciprocity is that is that I'm kind to you. Generally, your response is to be kind to me. That's generally how it will work. It's a reflex. Psychologists think about it like that. Now, so that's why, like, you know, when we get those like requests for donations, you know, they'll send us things. Like, you know, I remember one that had like, I got a whole thing of like addresses already written out, very cute, my own address, Oh, I'll use this now, right? So all of a sudden, the reciprocity is like, I guess I'll give something back. Like this is, people know this about us. So they use this, they leverage this reflexes, so they're more likely to give if, we, if they give us something first. That's reciprocity. The flip side of reciprocity is vengeance. In very sophisticated ter- terms, tit for tat, okay? And so, um, in, in justice work, there's all kinds of unprocessed hurt and grief that can leak out sideways. We don't talk about it as vengeful, but it, vengeance stuff is going on. We haven't processed it. And so this is this this element is really important. This is why shaming can also backfire. There's all these layers of things going on within the human condition that is more than just self-interest. Like self-interest as, as like the driving force is why the economists are generally wrong too, because they believe self-interest is what motivates people. And guess what? Behavioral um, Economists are saying that's not how it works. We do very, see humans are not linear. We're not linear. We never were linear. And, um, and you know, you don't need to go any closer than like look to your relatives. Look to the ones, especially you don't get along with, do what they do make sense to you, right? Like, and we don't make sense to them, right? So this is also what's going on. All right, so, um, Solutions. Well, here's, it's really important. Inner work and healing is part of our work as educators of all backgrounds, okay? For different reasons. Well, healing is a part of everyone where you come from dominant, non-dominant identities, whichever part is part of it. And beware self-righteousness and weaponizing the moral high ground. This happens over and over again. And our goal is to develop discernment skills and emotional fluidity. That means like knowing when to be open and soft versus boundary and fierce. Most of us kind of get stuck in a particular way of being. And that's because we don't have the fluidity yet. How can we develop that? That's, that's a, psychological, um, uh, a psychological, emotional, that's psychological, emotional work to so develop that kind of pl- that fluidity that also allows you to be um, pragmatic and be able to work with context and stay true to your principles, but also be able to deal with the context that you're in. Okay. And when in doubt, err are on the side of compassion for yourself and for others. So what I want to um, leave you with is, is that um, I want to arc this. And I'm going to close this with really looking at where are we going? We do this work in, in racial justice work and social justice. We're not defining where we're going. We're just like, end racism, end oppression. It's like, okay, but what does that look like? So... This year, I, I went back to the, to the work of Dr. King, and I've just been so moved by his work in so many different ways. He's such a badass in more ways than one, but his knowledge and, um, was, was quite, quite deep And you know, this this quote really captures it, is that our aim is not to defeat the white community, not to humiliate the white community, but to win the friendship of all persons who have perpetrated this system in the past. The end of violence, or the aftermath of violence is bitterness. The aftermath of nonviolence is reconciliation and the creation of a beloved community. A boycott is never an end within itself. It is merely a means to awaken a a sense of shame within the oppressor, but the end is reconciliation, the end is redemption. All right. So um, I'm going to pause us there. And um, we're going to open up the space for some conversations, uh, some insights. What, what are you getting from this? Emma, do you want to just give a sense of what, what's just sort of what you're sort of seeing? I know there's a, there's a lot of comments, just a little high sense of what's yeah. there.
0: I mean, lots of engagement and, uh, and this is a stumbling block. So I'm also going to represent my own investment here. Like yes to addressing shame, yes to all the psycho- psychological literacy, but what do you do with the white fragility? It keeps showing up, yeah. you know, how do you, how do you address it? Like we don't want to pander to it, but it's happening all the time.
2: Yeah, yeah. So that's a great question.
0: Uh, As we try to take more nuanced stances on anti-racism and a path forward, how do we develop humility in people who are following a deeply self-righteous path of anti-racism and actually recreating white supremacist culture? Uh, And the discussion on shame caused me to reflect on the way that shame triggering violent rage is extremely gendered. So interesting that that came up for me, but I, I only understand that, reading your comment. Um, yeah, how to offer compassion without centering whiteness.
2: Um, so yeah. I'm gonna gonna pick up on this one thread. A part of the reason I wanna answer a couple of questions, I know some people have to leave right at one, so let's just do a couple of things. This is a really important principle about how do you not center whiteness, right? And that's important because that's where we want the conversation to get to. But that doesn't mean you can't bring whiteness and attention to people who are white at different parts of the learning journey. See, the reality is, is that if you, if you think about this in the context of education, as um, you know, people at the beginning end and people at the PhD end, if you if you bring PhD expectations to people at the beginning, how long are they going to stay with you? So the reality is is that that's the fluidity. You've got to know at what parts of the program. Yes, it's completely okay to bring your stories in. Yes, it's important for you to talk about how class was part of it. Yeah, it's important to bring in your thing around um, things around gender. And how that's playing, right? That's important. So, what parts of your program is that all right in? And then, uh, what parts is it not? But to make the ju- see, it's this is a principle that's come out. And so, what do we do? It's like don't center whiteness. It's like, okay, that means that I have to never center whiteness. Well, guess what? If that's going to happen, you're not going to have people staying very long in your session. So you're gonna to have to be able to find a way to balance that that allows for the appropriate places to bring in the voices and experiences and the places where it's not appropriate. So in our deep diversity training, when we were doing things like in-person just to break things down, day one of a two-day program is really defined as our common human experience. So like everybody's experiences are brought in at that point. Everybody's talking. On day two, we're talking about power. Now we're talking about situations that aren't the same. And and so at this point, there's more capacity for people to listen more. And so we are building their emotional capacity. We're building their intellectual capacity and and their psychological capacity. But if you expect too much and it's gonna blow. So this is where it gets really challenging is that this is where I get a bit frustrated with academics because guess what, they're like academics. And they create great principles, which is great. I love them. I use them. But that doesn't mean we know how to implement them. And frankly, there's not a lot of academics that are good educators. Let's be clear. Right? That's not what they do. That's not their job. That's not not supposed to be their job. Their job is to create the theories that help us understand the problems. Our job is to take it and go, what works where? So this is where we get stuck. But if you don't have the emotional fluidity and psychological fluidity to work with that, you're gonna start putting up all kinds of boundaries in place, that's gonna undermine your teaching. So what's your program, All right, That's important. Emma, do you wanna add to that? I mean, you, you, your, your, this is your expertise as well. Love your thoughts.
0: Well, I'm... Um... What I found most useful was the way that you broke it down in terms of the role that we're playing. And so um, at the beginning, we took a poll, you know, are you an educator, are you an activist, are you an academic? Um, It's interesting that when we approach this as educators, we have a particular mandate. And I think what I'm, what you're teaching me in this moment is um, the boundaries around a particular role of being an educator. So I've got a particular mandate if I'm there as an educator. If I'm there as an activist, then I use shame strategically, frankly. Um, If I'm an academic, then I'm leveraging different research strategically. But uh, in the context of trying to discern the pathway forward, what I'm hearing is a language of focusing on context and remaining flexible so that you can make a discerned choice forward in terms of what your learning outcome is. Who's yeah. in the room? Where are you all trying to get to together? Right. So there's the no I, one fit size fits all. Sorry.
2: Thank you. The other part I want to address is this, is that you know, I don't want this conversation about psychological safety to make it sound like we're just talking about white people or we're just talking about men. So psychological safety is so important, especially for minoritized groups, right? Especially for people identify as queer, identify as black, as indigenous, as people of color. Like it's, it's so important to create spaces for that, but you gotta create its awareness that there's all these dynamics at play and there's different needs. That's a part of the skill of the educator is you gotta, equity is what trying to address the different needs in the room. Now, when we take a psychologically sophisticated approach um, what often, what we're trying to do is educate, is trying to get everyone to the same to the same levels so we can talk about these concepts, so that the most marginalized can feel s- safe. Now, so what I want to say is that in building in psychological literacy into the work that you're doing, um, I think that's actually even more important for folks of color for marginalized communities because guess what, psychological um, literacy can help marginalize people today, right now, in this moment. Whereas the promise of structural change is generations. And it's like, great, this isn't really helping me. It can help each of us um, as we think about strategies that, that bring in more compassion. That we think about strategies that give us more space to breathe, to connect with our bodies. Like this is also a very much the way that we talk about a deep diversity it's embodied. You've got to be in your body. You've got to feel your body. You've got to be able to sense your body. You've got to be able to feel other people. And, and then also to create the appropriate spaces. So if you're creating psychologically safe environments, um, then you're also thinking about, okay, so at what point in this process might we need um, a group, uh, an optional affinity group for folks of color? Like that's going to be context specific. It's not appropriate in every context, and also remember, like let's also be clear too. Like I get so frustrated with some of the some of the, some of the conversation. It's like let's be clear. Like folks of color, um, marginalized communities, like folks of color don't all intuitively know anti-oppression theories. They just don't. Let's be clear. If that was the case, we would have a way bigger party of people in this in, in the in the in the in the movements to change we'd have all our relatives sitting in the room that's not what happens because um, it's not intuitive it has to be taught we're teaching people a second language when we're teaching them oppression it's a second language and we have to think about that and what what's happening is that is that um, yes for marginalized communities, it might be easier because their lived experience immediately goes zip, zip, zap. Oh, my God, that helps explain my whole life. That's what happened to me when I first started reading antidepressant. I was like, oh, my God, that's that was my whole life. Now my life makes sense. Now I understand how, what happened. It wasn't all my fault. Like That's where it's like, oh, it can really help. But it doesn't help everybody and it doesn't all, it's not intuitive. So when people are saying, you know, people of color are bored of this conversation, really what they're saying is the activists in the crowd are bored of the conversation and don't just play to the activists in the crowd because everyone else also needs to come on page. Right? So I, I sometimes just get frustrated with that. Sometimes I'm like, okay, you know what? It's, yeah, like we see all kinds of folks of color in, in, our, in our organization go, like, wow, I've never thought about this in this way before that come when they, they come to our trainings and stuff. So I just wanna be clear, like, don't make assumptions around what people know. Your job as an educator is to figure out what people know and figure out where you need to get people to. We just assume that women are all gonna have a feminist perspective and an analysis that helps look at patriarchies is a false one. Many women will, especially ones that have had some training and many may connect their experiences to what is being talked about. isn't so it? just yeah, I just don't want to make that. But often we get into generalizations because that's what we've been kind of taught. And so as educators, we got to break that. We got to break out the noise down. We've got to break these things down for people. All right, well, welcome back everybody. If you are a note taker for your group, we'd love to invite you to put something into the chat, any reflections of what came out from the group. It doesn't have to be extensive, just a, a little taste. And we'd also like to just open up the floor for your reflections, for your comments, um, questions.
3: Hi, Shaquille, my name's Juanita. Um, I really uh, enjoyed this presentation. Uh, it was the first time I've really thought about the integration of uh, compassion um, and anti-racism work. So thank you so much for that. Uh, right Are now, I, I do have a lot of questions. Um, sure. But a lot more questions and answers. Sure. Um, And one of the things that we talked about in our group was um, balancing the need for boundaries and compassion, oftentimes uh, definitely coined a fierce compassion being coined by Tara Brock. this need that compassion isn't necessarily being nice. Uh, That's right. It it is about understanding. Uh, And and oftentimes, just like when, as a parent, uh, I I mean, just... (laughs) Just from what I know, the little that I know about parenting uh, is that oftentimes a form of love is boundaries. Absolutely. Um, and so my question is around how do you practically integrate compassion into situations where there are issues of white fragility, um, sexual, I mean harassment, sexual harassment, um, privilege, etc. Like how do you bring those two and white, white, um, white fragility? So how do you practically bring in compassion into that situation while while not allowing um, someone's biases or stereotypes to completely overthrow the conversation mm-hmm.
2: now can I ask you Juanita is um, am I saying that right
4: Mm-hmm.
2: Yes. Okay. can you can you tell me the context of, that your question is coming from because it's very general and it's, oh, it be hard okay, to... sure. so like for example if you were if you were thinking about this is this in a classroom setting is this with oh. uh, like if you could give if you can narrow it down a little bit it would help me answer because it otherwise it's just a it's too hard to answer it generically but where do you put boundaries in life in general as opposed oh, to as opposed to like if there's a more specific example that you were thinking about it might be easier for me to offer something that may be useful for you
3: okay thanks I, I appreciate that well my question i mean i'm a diversity inclusion program manager right. at a large corporation so right. what that means is that just as you were talking about there are people all along the spectrum yes uh, in terms of the understanding of privilege yeah. and race and oppression that's right so oftentimes when you're meeting people at the beginning and they're not on board that's right it, it's um the the white fragility comes up. That's up, right. Like, oh, we don't have to talk about this. I don't see color. All of the thi- all of the phrases that we're all in this room very familiar with. Mm-hmm. So my my m- and my, the ability to influence in DNI, in my opinion, is the especially in the corporate setting, is the number one skill that you you need because at the mm-hmm. end of the day. The ability to influence and actually um, coach people is is necessary, but it's hard to do that when somebody is saying things like "I don't see color. This isn't important," right. even though you have all the stats and all the data to show right. that it is. Right. So right. it's like you're constantly like banging against the wall, right. trying right. to explain and trying to be empathetic, but the white fragility is like you said, race. I can't deal with this. How do so, you, how do so, you?
2: so that's, that's helpful. So the, the, the starting point is always this is what kind of day are you having? It's always got to start with you. The first place compassion has got to start is self-compassion. How am I doing today? What am I up for today? What can I take on? That's sort of like your pre-work before you even go into work. And it's, your pre-work as you're getting to work, because situations changed. What well, you know, now we're online, it's a little bit easier. Our transition time isn't so big. But like, how are you doing? So it starts with you. That's where the first compassion comes in. That's also where the first boundary comes in. Is what what is my capacity today? And as I forecast my day, what are the meetings I'm going into? And in those meetings, who might I encounter? And Knowing that, what might I say? So it's a little bit of you putting yourself and doing the prep work, like race and gender um, and DNI is all colliding in your identity and your job. So you've got to start with you first. That's the first place where the compassion's got to start. Mm-hmm. So when I talk about compassion, we forget that A, it's got to start here. Mm-hmm. And then it's about who you're encountering. In some cases, of course, it's like, you know, you've got more juice. It's like, hey, um Emma can I just talk to you about that comment you made you know um or hey can we meet for lunch a couple things came up at the last meeting and I just want to so sometimes it's like the compassion like you got space where you want to educate um other times you've had that conversation it's like um yeah remember that thing we talked about it just happened again I just want to be really clear that um I talked to you about it before and you actually did it in the same way and I don't think it was helpful. It wasn't helpful for me in that room. Well, I think it was definitely not helpful to your colleagues. So there's ways that like how you show up is is, is your inner state and then what you want to give to that moment. So you've got to do a, a lot of this work is pre-work. If you're teaching, that's a whole different question. It's about how do you create the environment within which people can challenge? And, and that's where it's like, you know, come to our summer institute and we'll, you show we'll show you how we do it ourselves and what that environment may look like. But I would say it always starts with you and then anticipate what may be coming up and what are you willing to give and what's already in that relationship and what's not. Often we have to give a little more space in relationships that, that aren't. Then you have to think about what's the power play here. Is it like, I, I got to manage upwards because it's a manager above me, right? Mm-hmm. That's a different dynamic. So there's many layers, but I would say, always start with you and then anticipate what may emerge as to what kind of boundaries you're gonna need what you're up for
3: yeah i see what you're saying because every situation is different so it's hard to say a plus b plus c because as you check human beings are not linear so
2: that's right and this is where the fluidity comes in we were talking about this idea of like having the fluidity do you have the do you have you done enough work both cognitively and most of us can get around the cognitive stuff but what locks us up is not the cognitive what locks us up is the emotional so what Mm -hmm. what do you need to do so this is all also like all of our habits around how well we look after ourselves, the food we're eating, the sleep we're getting, you know, time with loved ones—all those different kinds of things that also nurture us, so we can build our capacity to be in the space. Because yeah. otherwise, it just—it's just like constant out. We're gonna, are we're gonna run out of juice, run out of gas, and then we're not as good. So that's that. That's so that's the emotional literacy piece. It's like it's always starts with us.
0: May I add something?
2: Please, yeah.
0: Uh, Brian Lowry is a social psychologist, I believe at Stanford, and um, he's written about the psychology of white privilege. Mm-hmm. And so this language of I don't see color, which like, come on, of course you do, um, is a part of a framework that he's identified as like denying. And he says that whenever in his research, when white folks feel their identity is being questioned or somehow Delegitimized, they try to manage identity by engaging in denial statements. Mm. And one of the things that he says, and I'm like, so Shaquille talked about the compassion and making sure like your cup is full, so to speak. So this is like when the cup is really full, because this is a difficult thing to do. But starting the conversation about educating about white privilege can often activate mm. uh, defensiveness
3: exactly.
0: and. And the anxiety, the, neuro, the psychological anxiety that one's, like, that one's success is not earned and that one is part of an immoral group. And no one wants to feel like they, don't, they haven't earned their success and that they are an immoral person. No one likes mm-hmm. to feel that way. And so the denial, I used to think that when white folks said, I don't see color, that they were stupid and they were jerks. Mm. Uh, and, I, and I could stay there. I could stay there forever they're stupid they're jerks i don't want to hang out with you goodbye Mm. when we're building the bridge which is exhausting but when we are engaged in that (coughs) um another orientation to that uh statement is ah you must feel under attack Mm. so how can i have this conversation in a way that accounts for the fact that you're feeling defensive yeah it's that could change the channel it's just one strategy what was his name brian lowry i'll put him into the uh into the chat
1: hi terry lynn here can i say something is that okay um i also wanted to say sorry i don't think people can see me well but (laughs) i'm using my phone and i only have so much hope for it um (laughs) but i wanted to say one you you did say that um you know you mentioned something about how how do I know I'm being effective or how do how can I be more effective in your role and I would say that um you're having an impact whether or not you have whether or not change is created with every single person that you talk to and engage with because that's not all, all on you that's not on you as like an individual person that's not on you as like um as like a black person or like, it, it's also organizational and you're working within a lot of um, systems. So in terms of starting with um, self-compassion as to feel said, when it doesn't work out, I would start with, um, if you have beliefs around like, oh, I didn't do my job well, or, or it's my fault. Like those beliefs are probably like wholly inaccurate. Yeah, well,
3: that's a good point. Thank you. Thank Thanks, Tara. Do you have any, like, do you have a class that specifically goes into the compassion piece more and anti-racism or is this just the one-time thing?
2: No, that's that's kind of the whole deep diversity approach that we use. So like I said, the Summer Institute is where A, a the book uh, will help you uh, okay. and, and um, as will the Summer Institute, that's where you get a deeper dive with it. Okay. Yeah, great.
3: Thank you so much. Thank
2: you. You're so it. welcome. Um, other questions or comments? Cynthia. Hi,
5: thank That's you for name. such an informative session. So my group, we sort of talked about And I brought it up, um, you know, how do you sort of balance this work? Um, So I work as a consultant in the the space of racial equity, and I do find this work is still very much seeped and rooted in in whiteness, right? Mm -hmm. Um, So everything from those that we are teaching, the key decision makers, you name it. And so how do we balance out the work with those that have lived with, um, you know, the trauma Of racism and to ensure that they're getting adequate you know support attention and we are sort of streamlining resources to make sure these groups are uh, have an opportunity to contribute and to heal from this process so I don't know if you can say some words I know it's quite loaded but (laughs) I don't know if you can say some words on that
2: I could um, I want to again just um, invite you to do the same thing that I asked for when he said like can you can you narrow that down just a little bit like is there a particular thing you're thinking about because um, it, 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 the specific will actually help us get to the more general. the general often yeah. helps us miss something that might be useful.
5: I would say it's it's being in these spaces, mixed yeah. mixed spaces where um, for myself as a racialized woman, you know I'm I get you know like I sure I get it. this is my lived experience you know as far as racism is concerned. And so I think with some of your teachings, what I'm struggling with is how do I, you know, just in terms of compassion and the empathy, I think it's difficult knowing that I have my
2: own healing to do, so I don't know if that makes sense.
5: So how do you it, balance it, that out?
2: It totally does. Well, first of all, um, thanks for, thanks for bringing that in and making that personal. I just want to name that. Cause I think that's actually the important point, right? Like we're not, when we, when we're talking about this, um, it, it's gotta start with you first. What are you up for? What do you have available to you? Um, What clients do you want to take on? Because if you're a consultant, you know that there's just some clients you can tell just by the email exchange that this is not gonna go well, right? So you knowing your boundaries is important and you, you putting in the space for yourself first is probably the more important step like screw compassion for other people right now or in the day that you're in or the week that you're having. Bring it to yourself because again, like stuff is gonna land on you as a racialized woman. It's gonna land on you um, um, because of so many factors that are you had nothing to do with. And so how are you resourcing yourself? As you can resource yourself more, as you can create more space for yourself, um, as, as you take the time, then your ability to, to 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 deal with what you have to deal with gets to be a little more, uh, more possible. So uh, for you, I would just say like, it's, you know, if you are choosing to be in that space where you know you- You have to re-enter, and you know you have to guide, and you know you have to teach. and you. So then my question to you is, even before you get to all those things, what are you doing to get yourself there? What are you doing to support yourself? And as you answer that question, the other ones will be actually easier on some level, for sure, because you know what you're walking into. You're gonna walk into white fragility. You're gonna walk into um, um, sexism. You're going to walk into people underestimating you because you're an outsider. um, uh, You're a woman, X, Y, Z, whatever it might be. They're just like layers and layers of stuff that that, that's going to hit you. Anti-Black racism is alive and well as a fiend and it is impacting. So are you taking the time for yourself so you can be effective and then figure out the strategies about how you want to deal with the clients that you have and think about the clients that are, you know, um really like aligned with your purpose and think of the ones that are you have to stretch for and how many of those do you want to take on and how many of these do you want to, do you have in your basket which ones do you have and if you know you're going through a stretch where there's a lot that's coming up and you know it's all going to be pretty choppy then how are you going to resource yourself and mm-hmm. is it is it right to say yes all the time i mean that that's the way i would start that and then and then it'd be about what, how, then the other questions I think follow about what's showing up, but it's it's you first.
5: Great points. Thank you.
0: Right. You're welcome. I just, I also wanted to say that it, when I'm working with a lot of activists around racial justice, a lot of the time the conversation gets framed as justice and not always trauma. And this is an important reminder that we need to approach racism as injustice and mm-hmm. violence, the violence piece always has to be there because there's a cultural fluency that violence is trauma. But there's a strange disconnect. When we talk about injustice, we don't always acknowledge that it is a traumatizing thing to live through. And, um, and so it's an invitation for all of us to insist, this is an emotionally painful, to survive racism is devastating. It is painful. Um, and that language is often missing when we are exclusively focused on justice.
2: That's a great point, thanks, Emma. Yeah, other comments or questions? Thanks for that, Cynthia. Any other questions or comments or reflections that you're having, things you picked up, things that were helpful, a taste of your, your conversation that you had um, in your group? Oh, Gillian? Oh, sorry, Nikki? Oh, I saw Gillian, then I saw Nikki, okay.
4: Gillian? Hi, it's, uh, well, I'm really grateful to see the faces of people who are not of dominant culture and are doing this hard work. I feel like you're voluntarily putting yourself in harm's way, trying to make change. Um, and it must feel like you're punching bags every day when you start to do this work and the hard lift with those from the dominant culture. Um, experiencing traumas I think uh, having with the Me Too movement a few years ago and so many women have experienced um, sexist culture um, but a woman less of and not having equal opportunity to their male peers um, even though we might be white and part of dominant culture and what you said really resonates with me. Um, And we've had conversations about that in the workplace. And that isn't recognized by male colleagues. Um, That's not the norm. I've never done that. Um, um, And just on that front, never had a chance to to do that internal work at an organization. Um, And that would be hard. Just trying to put myself in those shoes. Um, The work that we're doing um, and that you're leading um, is incredibly hard. Um, I might emphasize through my experience that I've just talked about, but it just, it, it resonates with me as a, as a woman, um, but it's harder, it's even harder. So thank you very much for the work you're doing.
2: Thank you, Gillian. Thank you. Um, you said something that's, that's important. Um, you said it must feel like you're a punching bag every day. Um, the psychological literacy part that's, re- that's important is Please try not to be in an environment where you feel like you're a punching bag every day, because that means that, that uh, um, you're in a place or a space that really may not be good for you in the long term or even the short term, if it's emotionally that hard. Now we can have stretches where it's hard. We can have people that are hard and we can have like, oh boy, I don't want to go in that department again, or whatever it might be, there's places. But if we're consistently in a place where it's like that, then, then we need to really think about our role. Sometimes what we forget is that we have, we often have more choice than we think we do. And that sometimes we put ourselves in positions where we have to look at and go, is this really good for me? Is this really the right role for me? Could I be doing something else that was, didn't have so much wear and tear? So I just invite us that that's again the, that's a lot of our own work that we sometimes have to do because you know sometimes we get stuck in bad relationships. And they can be bad work relationships too, just like they can be personal ones. And 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 that even though the choices might be hard, sometimes we have to make choices to leave a bad relationship, right? Because if it's if that's what's happening, it's, I just want to put that out there that again, we need to give ourselves permission, compassion to make sure the choices we're making are important choices that that allow us to be our whole selves as much as possible. And if you're in a place where you just feel like you don't have choice, then it's a different strategy you're working on. You're not working at a flourishing strategy, you're looking at a survival strategy. And that's a different thing. So I just want to put both those pieces out there. So appreciate that. appreciate the reflection that, and it, that just caught my attention as well for just all of us to, to remember. Now there's one other person that spoke that had their hand up after Jillian and then I, I lost track of them on the
3: screen.
1: Nikki, I think, yep.
2: Oh, Nikki, hi, Nikki.
1: Hi, I don't want to take up too many, too much. I see a lot of people are signing out. I just. Oh, yes,
2: <laughs> 1.30, <Oops>. thank you. <laughs>
1: Yeah, so I don't want to say too much, but I just want to say that uh, the breakout room I had was extremely productive, and there was a lot of really insightful things said, even just about trying to think of the educator in a more of a lateral sense, that it's more of this relationship building rather than the sort of top-down, here's a piece of information you take, you digest, you eat <laughs> and um, go on, but that this sort of relationship building that everyone's gonna give a perspective that the students in there have something to add, that the teacher has something to add, the facilitator, everybody there is a coming together of knowledge rather than uh, this sort of top-down approach that. Uh, is generally used in uh, higher education especially so yeah I just wanted to share what our group was talking about it because I thought it was interesting thank you
2: thank you Nikki that's great well listen everybody appreciate your time it is 1 any final words from you before you sign off
0: well just that this is uh communities like this is what I love most about Anima so thank you for for showing up and for offering all the insights that you have and Engaging so deeply in group and in big group discussions is wonderful. Thank you. Thanks, everybody.
2: Have a great rest of your day, and hopefully, we'll see you at the next cafe.
0: Thank you so much for listening today. Our next episode will be available soon.